This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I had asked for it. A dive to the ocean floor. The wind rushed at me like a mad bull. I clung to a one-rope rail and then down we go. 30 feet down through a steel tube like a chimney built for a slim Santa Claus. The year was 1960. Clementine Paddleford, the food writer for the New York Herald Tribune, was 61 years old when she descended into the 54-square-foot galley kitchen of the USS Skipjack. At the time, it was the world's fastest nuclear submarine. And we're off. Five miles into Long Island Sound, operating at 80 to 200 feet below the surface. Now to the galley to see dinner get underway. Clementine wanted to find out how a Cold War Navy cook churned out 300 meals a day for sailors living on a submarine 200 feet below the surface of the ocean. There are other challenges taken up by naval ingenuity. Kitchens may be mini-sized, but appetites are traditionally big. I had come aboard to see how America eats in what the crew call our underwater hotel. Every detail is a marvel in efficiency. Beneath the wave, she watched, questioned and furiously scribbled notes and recipes. She wrote about strawberry shortcake, prime rib, brownies for hundreds, all prepared in a space hardly bigger than a bathroom. Her subsequent article was read by millions. When we talk about the titans of food writing, the names that come up the most are people like Anthony Bourdain, Michael Pollan, Julia Child. Most people have never heard the name Clementine Paddleford. Clementine's legacy on today's food writing is the celebrity chefs and the other passionate personalities who create and write about the food we eat and drink. That's Cynthia Harris, co-author of the book Hometown Appetites, the story of Clementine Paddleford, the forgotten food writer who chronicled how America ate. And also, I'd like to think that part of her legacy is the farm-to-table movement because she wrote so much about how the food reached the table. Before Clementine came along, food writing was dry and boring. It was a science, but never an art. Clementine changed all that. 
She laid the groundwork for the way every newspaper, every magazine, and the entire food network writes and talks about food today. And yet, her name has been mostly lost to history. But once you know her story, you'll start to see her everywhere. From iHeartRadio and Tribeca Studios, this is Fierce. I can't type. Yes, women workers do present problems, Joe. A podcast about the incredible women who never made it in your history books and the modern women carrying on their legacies today. Here's to the ladies, the fair and the weak. I can't find Women workers don't mind routine, repetitive work. Will you make a copy of this? Naturally. Each week, we're bringing you the story of a groundbreaking woman from the past who made huge contributions to the present, but whose name still isn't on the tips of our tongues, for whatever reason. Maybe it's because men wrote most of history. At the end of each episode, I'll be joined by a woman living today who's standing on the shoulders of this historical figure, whether she knows it or not. Clementine Paddleford was a legend in her time. R.W. Apple of the New York Times summed up her influence like this. Clementine Paddleford was the Nellie Bly of culinary journalism. A go-anywhere, taste-anything, ask-everything kind of reporter who traveled more than 50,000 miles a year in search of stories in a day when very few food editors strayed far from their desks. Clementine was instrumental in shaping how we talk about food the way we do today. With a language infused with delight, passion, and sometimes even lust. But long before that, she was a girl born on a farm in Kansas. Clementine, or Clem as she was known to her friends, was born on September 27, 1898. She spent her early years on a 260-acre farm near Manhattan, Kansas. The family raised pigs and grew staples of the American kitchen, like corn and strawberries. Clementine once wrote about making ice cream out of freshly fallen snow. The Paddlefords were hardy people, descendants of Revolutionary War soldiers. Her mother, Jenny, came from true pioneer stock right off the Blue Stem Prairies in Minnesota. Jenny was also an anomaly in her day. She came from a farming family, but did something very few other women in Kansas were doing at the time. Attended college in 1883, taking classes at Kansas State. Clementine rode a horse to school, but she spent her early mornings and evenings helping out on the farm. That's where she witnessed firsthand the backbreaking labor that both men and women put into growing the food America ate. She saw how farmers lived and died by the hand of Mother Nature. It was Jenny Paddleford who showed Clem the true joy of gathering around a table, something Clementine would later infuse into all of her writing. At our supper table, there was family togetherness. Plus, supper was a time for laughter. Arguments were forbidden. Jenny had another bit of sage advice for her daughter, growing up on that farm in rural Kansas. Never grow a wishbone, daughter, where your backbone ought to be. It stuck with Clem as a girl, and then as a teenager who longed to be a journalist in a field dominated by men. Clementine grew her backbone. She strengthened it as an editor at the college newspaper at Kansas State, earning pocket money freelancing for Kansas newspapers and farm magazines writing mostly about livestock breeding practices. While she was studying journalism, 
Nobody, I mean, nobody was safe from Clementine Paddleford. Her daily job was to go to the train depot and write about the comings and goings of the locals. She would also look at her neighbor and say, what happened at your house since the last time I talked to you yesterday? She was just a busybody. She was a busybody. She knew then when she graduated from Kansas State University in 1921 that she was going to go to New York and she was going to be famous. She set off for New York, where she freelanced for The Sun and The New York Telegram, starting her career off writing mostly puff pieces. Today, they'd be called clickbait. One article was entitled, Girl Uses a Fake Limp to Get a Seat. Another, Girl Saves Her Hat in Subway Crush. It was embarrassing and unsung work, but those were the journalism assignments the girls were given, when girls were given assignments at all. In Clementine's archives, there's this early recommendation letter that a male copy editor wrote for her. Clementine is an able writer of both imaginative and fact material, a combination of abilities which I have found rare among women writers. The puff pieces didn't make her any money, so Clem tried other ways to earn cash, from writing press releases and business reports, to babysitting and waiting tables in a theological seminary. She even slung umbrellas at gimbals. She used what little money beyond rent she had to pay for journalism classes at NYU and Columbia. Here's what she wrote to her mother at the time. Sometimes I fairly hate New York. That's producer Anna Stumpf reading Clementine's words from her biography, the one co-written by Cynthia Harris and Kelly Alexander. Quotes in this episode also come from Clementine's own article, How to Cook for a Whole Crew, published in the Herald Tribune in July 1960. Sometimes I hate everything, down to the last banana skin and stray cat. But when I think of leaving it, all of the racket, the dirt, the beauty, the ugliness, all mixed in so comfortably together, I almost revolt at the thought. Even though she had misgivings about New York, she eventually gained a foothold at a magazine called Farm and Fireside, editing their women's pages. Women's pages. These were distinct from men's pages. Men's pages had news, business, finance. Women's pages contained stories about interior design, curling your hair, mending your shoes, crocheting, how to best clean a refrigerator and a chicken, all in an hour. Clementine was practical. As the country slid into the Great Depression, she realized she'd have to focus her efforts on an area of journalism that would never go away. She thought about what people really needed, even when times were bad. And she landed on two things, shoes and food. As the situation in the country became more serious, this is how she determined that food writing would be her surest path to a sustainable career. But Clementine was not content with the status quo, with doing things the way they'd been done just because that's the way they'd always been done. Clementine decided if she was going to write for women, she was going to write for real women. And that meant getting away from her desk and visiting women all over the country. Of course, she had to convince her bosses. And I can't imagine that conversation was easy. But in the end, Clementine was as persuasive as she was persistent. And she got the permission to travel, to break away from her desk. Going into homes and kitchens, talking to real people, that's what made these stories come alive off the page. But just as she was gathering steam as a food writer, she suffered a devastating setback. In 1931, at the age of 33, Clementine Paddleford developed throat cancer. She finally went to the doctor who said, yes, you have cancer. 
and he gave her two options. They could remove her entire larynx, and that would eradicate all the cancer. But then Clementine might never talk again. Well, that's not so good for a food writer reporter that needed their voice to talk to people and to interview them. The other option, riskier in a lot of ways, was that they'd remove part of the larynx, but that might not leave her cancer-free. Clem's entire career was based on her voice. She chose the riskier surgery. She would end up having to have a trach tube. She would have to put her finger over the hole of the trach tube when she talked, which resulted in a raspy, low whispery type voice. It took her a year to speak above a whisper. And even then, she needed a special machine inserted into her larynx to allow her to speak. It was made of sterling silver, almost like a piece of jewelry. To hide it, she tied a black ribbon around her neck like a choker. It held the silver voice box in place, and it became a kind of signature look to accompany her new, deep and crackly voice. It never slowed Paddleford down. One day, she met a lady who said that her son had a trach tube, and Clementine wrote this woman a letter and said, The only thing that the trach tube stops is me playing tennis and swimming. Tennis, I get out of breath, and swimming, if I'd swim, I would drown. She says it meant she had to be more charismatic, seductive, winsome, and charming, all with just her eyes. The recovery beat her down, but eventually she'd laugh about the surgery and the voice box. She'd come to see it as an asset. Because of my voice, people never forget me. We'll be back with more of Clementine's story right after this quick break. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. 
At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. By working hard and simply being better at her job than any other food writer at the time, Clementine made herself a household name. In 1936, she began to write for the New York Herald Tribune. She subsequently picked up a regular column in the newspaper supplement this week. Her continued travels ended up taking her to every single state. Ohio to cover three-cornered poppy seed turnovers. Perfect for Purim or a bridge club supper. Missouri to cover a family who kept a melting pot of cheese going for 16 years. Hawaii in a trip that helped put Hawaiian food on the map. Dropping into the far corners of the country made Clementine an expert. Maybe the country's first expert on regional food. Tell me where your grandmother came from and I can tell you how many kinds of pie you serve for Thanksgiving. She was known to say. She had a knack for embellishing even the lowliest of foods, so they seemed like taste delights. In Clementine's prose, mushrooms became the elf of plants. Or pixie umbrellas. Picture that for a moment. Think about how delightful it is. A sprightly pixie holding a truffle or a chanterelle to shield themselves from a misty drizzle. Here's how Clementine felt biting into an apple. The teeth crack into the brittle flesh. A whiny flavor floods the mouth. The soul of the apple blossom distilled. Staring at a perfect strawberry shortcake. The juice ran in rivulets, making a crimson lake on the plate. She once found a chili with rib-sticking qualities that make you young beyond your time. On coffee. Good coffee makes the meal. At least it makes the good meal perfect and the poor meal possible. Coffee, reheated, gives an evil cooking liquid that might have been brewed out of the Dead Sea after a recipe left by the Witch of Endor. One of my favorite lines of Clem's is about a hot and comforting clam chowder. Chowder breathes reassurance. It steams consolation. So much of Clementine's magic was focusing on the people behind the food. That's commonplace now. Profiles of chefs, farmers, competitive eaters. But it wasn't back then. Back then, food was written about as if it was something cooked up in a lab, not something dreamed up by human beings. And one of the most remarkable things Clementine did was using food as an entryway into every other story of the day. 
Food writing in Clem's day, before she started innovating it, was pretty much precise in a how-to, step-by-step instructions. They didn't tell you anything about the history of the food or anything like that. Clem covered the 1940 Republican National Convention by writing about the importance of Scrapple. Scrapple, for those of you who don't live in Philadelphia, is a sausage-adjacent dish made from slaughterhouse leftovers. Here's what Clem wrote about it. It's Philadelphia Scrapple that offers the first warm welcome of the day on breakfast plates. A strengthener for delegates who need a hearty breakfast under their belts to tide them through the bedlam and oratory of the opening of the National Republican Convention. When America entered World War II in 1941, Clem made it her job to report on how the war was affecting real Americans at their kitchen tables. During World War II, there was a battle on the home front, too. The tussle with ration books, tokens, and stamps. Supplies were short, and everything from shoes to gasoline was doled out. No stamps, no soul. She began writing about the kinds of food people were eating in wartime America because she knew it was important to chronicle heroism and enterprise at home. Let the American people read about themselves for once, while everyone else was covering what was happening abroad. She showed her readers how to cook beaver, muskrat, bear, snake, whale, and turtle, all to substitute for rationed beef. Clem wrote, Turtle meat is... Red meat in color tastes something like veal with an underlying flavor distinctly its own. One local chef invited her to try tasting beetles. That seemed like it was going too far. These articles brought people together, showed them what they had in common through their culinary ingenuity. When Winston Churchill visited Fulton, Missouri in 1946, Clem described the meal served, while everyone else droned on and on about the Iron Curtain. It was, of course, a very big day in the history of Fulton, Missouri, when President Truman and Winston Churchill paid their visit. Churchill enjoys home-cooked Missouri meal, screamed Clementine's headline. She wrote that the buffet included ham plastered with a paste of mustard mixed with brown sugar, fried chicken, twice-baked potatoes, asparagus canned not fresh, and angel food cake with ice cream. She didn't focus on Churchill, exactly, but rather the wife of the college president who was preparing the meal. Of her demeanor while cooking for one of the leaders of the free world, Clementine insisted the home cook was the alpha and omega of studied calmness. Clem was everywhere at this point. James Beard once said she was surely the most getting-aroundest person he'd ever known. Besides, of course, Eleanor Roosevelt. Between 1948 and 1960, she logged more than 800,000 miles over land and by air. That's enough miles to circle the globe 30 times. Her contemporary Susan Delight noted that she thought nothing of using a weekend to fly to the West Coast. Or, in one instance, Europe. Clem was making good money at the Herald Tribune, and also at This Week. She was churning out stories like nobody's business. But traveling on other people's schedules took time. She often went by commercial airplane, train, car, and sometimes even mule. But she had so many stories she wanted to cover. How could she get where she wanted to go even faster? By learning to fly. Her own plane. In her 50s, Clem began studying to learn how to fly a plane, taking navigation classes at night and on weekends at NYU. Learning to fly gave her freedom. No one could tell her she couldn't go somewhere, not when she was the one flying the plane. 
Clementine was thoroughly modern and thoroughly her own person in every sense of the word. She found ways to liberate herself in both her professional and personal lives. She did get married. She actually married quite young, but she kept it a secret so she wouldn't have to abandon her slew of admirers. This was a radical move. Women during Clem's time not only lived with their husbands, but they lived for them. Clem's husband was like a garnish to her life, like parsley. He was never the main course. She eventually divorced him, but they remained close. After that, she had a regular roster of dates that she'd schedule around her first priority, work. It's even rumored that she once made one of her male suitors try out an extremely experimental form of the birth control pill. She never had her own children. But when a close friend died of cancer, she took in her 12-year-old daughter, adopted her, and finished raising her on her own. She didn't blink an eye. And it never slowed down her career. We'll be back with more of Clementine's story right after this quick break. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. 
Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. At the height of Clem's fame in the 1950s and early 60s, more than 12 million households were reading her columns. Her piece de resistance was the Christmas 1960 publication of How America Eats, a comprehensive cookbook featuring 800 recipes gathered into a state-by-state tour. She researched it for more than 12 years, interviewed more than 2,000 cooks, and ate every single recipe in the book. She was a phenom. So why don't we know the name Clementine Paddleford? There are a few reasons. Personally, I think she was a product of her time. That was one. Second of all, she had throat cancer, so she couldn't do radio and television. The third reason, William I. Nichols, her editor at This Week magazine, had offered to buy her name, similar to like Dear Anne or Dear Abby, and Clementine refused. Maybe that wasn't a bad thing because Clementine died in 1967 and This Week magazine did not last many more years after that, so she would have probably been lost to history anyway. Clementine Paddleford is relevant to any woman working in any field today, not just food writing. To me, Clem's this incredible example of how if you take your career into your own hands, you can make anything happen. You can build your own success just by being unabashedly yourself. You can't open Instagram, turn on the TV, walk into a bookstore, or open a magazine without stumbling on someone carrying on Clem's legacy. The legacy that gave food writing life, humor, and relevance. Today, there are so many people writing in Clem's spirit, and they don't even realize it. Like my guest, food writer Yasmin Khan. Yasmin's the best-selling author of two books, The Saffron Tales, which focuses on Persian food, and Zaytun, which celebrates Palestinian cuisine. Like Clem, Yasmin was inspired by her family's farm. Only hers was in northern Iran. After a decade working for human rights nonprofits in the Middle East, Yasmin realized there was another way she could bring people together, that she could help them find common ground through food writing. Along with recipes, both her books reveal the humanity of a region through cuisine. Yasmin's writing, like Clementine's, elevates food as a vital point of personal connection, sparking empathy that can lead to social change. And yet, Yasmin didn't know anything about Clementine when we started our conversation. She had no idea she was carrying on Clem's legacy. We caught up with Yasmin in a studio in London. All right. Hey, welcome to Fierce. Hi, how you doing? So had you heard of Clementine Paddleford before we reached out to you? I had not, but I really wish I had. I mean, doesn't it say it all about kind of women's erasure in history that, you know, I feel like I'm pretty well read about, you know, pioneering women in in this genre. And no, I hadn't heard of her. I mean, she sounds so brave and empowering and inspiring. She was. She really was. I want to ask you a little bit about how you got into food writing in the first place. How did you choose food as your beat? 
it kind of happened by accident. I did a law degree. I spent about a decade working for nonprofits. And then, as is very common in the industry, I became, you know, quite burnt out by a lot of the work I was doing and the stories I was seeing, because so much of it related to conflict in the Middle East, that I took a bit of time out. Then as part of that trip of trying to recover from my burnout, I went and spent some time on my family's farm in northern Iran, which is this beautiful green landscape filled with rice paddies, tea plantations, you know, incredible fruit trees such as pomegranates and kiwis and apples and oranges, as well as all the vegetables you'd want to eat. And surrounded by that incredible produce, I sat and kind of thought about, okay, well, maybe I don't want to go back into the world of nonprofits, but maybe there's something I can do to share the story of Iran through a different medium. So it was kind of there in my grandmother's kitchen in 2012, when really intense US sanctions were hitting Iran, and we thought there was going to be a war. I thought, hey, maybe I can write a book that humanizes the people of Iran and shares ordinary stories through food. It's really interesting because Clementine also came from a family of farmers. Oh, really? She did. Yeah, she came from a family of farmers in Kansas and happened upon food by accident. So I think that that's a really fascinating connection between the two of you. Well, you end up having a lot of reverence and respect for food, I think, when your family are, are toiling, literally like toiling in the fields to grow things in order to make their living. You, you really become aware of the elements and how nature affects livelihoods. Um, but you also have a lot of fun. I mean, one of my earliest food memories is like milking a cow. Now looking back, I feel really lucky that I had that experience. I think when you have that intimacy with food, you can't help but love it even more. There's something about just being able to go down to the garden and literally dig out an onion and put it in a stew or a casserole that there's something kind of magical about it. And so you decided that you were going to write a food and travel book to make the stories of the people in Iran come alive. And you launched a Kickstarter project. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Kickstarter had just started. And so I thought, well, you know, why not test this and see if people would be interested in it? I feel, again, so grateful for this. I think I hit my fundraising target, hit 50% of it in the first 24 hours. I was funded by 300 very generous people from all over the globe, many of them non-Iranian, who were just, I think, connected to this mission that I had of challenging stereotypes of Iran and using food as a way of celebrating our common humanity. And why did you think that food would be able to accomplish that? I was trying to find a point that would be relatable between someone sitting in New York City and someone sitting in Tehran. So I thought, well, hey, Persian food's amazing. There's a story to be told about Iran. Maybe I can combine them both. And what was the reaction? I think it did what I wanted it to do and much more. I actually just, you asked me that and I think I just welled up a little bit because it's really interesting at this point in my career to look back and think that just a little idea that I had has kind of spawned a genre. I mean, the New York Times, The Guardian, you know, the BBC kind of all called it, or the Wall Street Journal, all said it was one of the cookbooks of the year, which for a debut author is, is quite incredible, especially a debut author without a background in food. And one of the most beautiful things is that, you know, I go on Instagram now and people send me pictures from Berlin or Brisbane or Brooklyn, pictures of food that they've made, perhaps a regional recipe from the area where my family are from, and they're making it for their friends. They're making it for their family. They're building this connection. They're sharing like the joy and the beauty of the rich tapestry of Persian food with people around them. And yeah, I can't even tell you what that makes me feel. I was just getting chills listening to you because that's exactly what Clementine did. She went into 
real kitchens. She talked to real people with real stories. How did you think that the stories behind the food and the humans behind the food would be the thing that would connect people, not just the recipes? In terms of Iran and throughout the Middle East, I think there's a big gulf between what most ordinary Americans think of Iran and what the reality was, that if I could just offer a window into that, I knew that people would be hooked. It wasn't easy by any chance. You know, I didn't have a fixer. This is all kind of stuff that I spent long periods of time researching. But that meant that I could get people's trust, go out for a cup of tea with them and explain what I was doing. And then these people I met were so generous. You know, I got invited into the homes of teachers and fishermen and hip hop artists and yoga teachers and designers, businesswomen. I mean, it was just so varied. And I just felt that sharing those stories could be such a valuable thing to do. Did you find that when you told people you wanted to write about food, that they lit up in a different way? You have absolutely hit the nail on the head. Many people in the Middle East feel over-researched, another journalist coming to talk to them about how terrible things are. But if you get someone talking about the food that they love, their favorite recipe, maybe sharing food memories. People light up, but also you forge a connection with the interviewee and sharing how their communities act, how their infrastructure acts, how their environment is. And you get this really deep sense of who a person is. In your travels and in your writing about your travels, have you found food to be the great unifier? Well, it's very disarming food. Even if you're in a kind of tense situation or if you're talking to someone about something that's, you know, a little bit fraught, it's really hard to keep that emotion whilst you're eating something delicious. Your second book, Zaytun, it's recipes and tales from the Palestinian kitchen. Talk to me a little bit about how you think food writing and food broadcasting can help bring about social change. The starkest examples, maybe, is when on my tours or in my books, I talk about the situation in Gaza and I talk about this unique food culture that exists in Gaza, filled with green chilies and dill and lots of garlic. But alongside that, I say, well, you know, we can't talk about Gazan cuisine and this holy trinity of ingredients they have and their unique seafood without actually also talking about the blockade. The fact that for the last almost 12 years now, the people of Gaza have been living under siege, how 97% of the water is undrinkable there according to Amnesty International, about how 80% of people who live there are dependent on UN food aid just to survive. But, you know, someone picking up an article and reading that in the news section, maybe then might not want to do it. But if you approach it through culture, I think this is where the power of the arts are so strong. It just enables these subjects that can be quite tough to feel more digestible. And that's where I think the really power of, of it comes. And I think one of the things that has really struck me is actually the different approach that we're seeing now that we have more women involved. I think up until Ruth Reichel, food writing and the mainstream anyway was much more about the slightly elitist, kind of slightly snobby critiquing of restaurants or dishes. You know, it felt very distant from ordinary people's lives. Whereas what we've seen, I think, in the last few decades is the genre really developing and being like, hey, actually, no, we're going to look at the whole totality of the human experience, but we're just going to look at it through food. It's a really exciting community to be part of at the moment. Tell me a little bit about your advice for women who want to break into food writing today. What is your advice for getting to do what Clementi did and what you're doing now? I always recommend people the book Will Write for Food by Diane Jacob. If you're even thinking broadly of getting into the food writing world, then 
you really want to start with that. And then my other thing is, I believe that anybody can become good at anything, but you just really have to put the practice in. I, when I was transitioning over to being a food writer, I sat and did lots of exercises, lots of writing exercises, really kind of tried to find my voice, got some coaching, you know, really invest in that. I think there is a little bit of a tendency to think, especially with social media culture, oh, I'm just going to post lots of pictures and become an Instagram star. And then that's my way into a food writing legacy. But I don't think actually there's a legacy necessarily in that. So you have to really find your voice and your contribution first. And from there, you just, yeah, you have to dream big. Because if there's one thing I've learned from my Kickstarter and my transition is that, you know, really anything is possible in this world. You just have to believe that you can do it. Thanks so much to our guests, biographer Cynthia Harris and author Yasmin Khan. Fierce is hosted and written by Joe Piazza, produced and directed by me, Anna Stumpf. Our executive producers are Joe Piazza, Nikki Etor, Anna Stumpf, and from Tribeca Studios, Leah Sarbib. Male voices in this episode by Hamilton Lighthouser. This episode was co-produced by Michelle Lands, edited and soundscaped by Anna Stumpf. Our associate producer is Emily Marinoff. Fact-checking by Austin Thompson. Research by Lizzie Jacobs. The Fierce theme song was written by Hamilton Lighthouser and Anna Stumpf. Our very sincere thanks to Mangesh Hatikador for making this series possible. And we want to mention that there have been multiple moments as we've made this series where one thing or another that we wanted to do looked like it was going to be impossible. And it was Nikki Etor who always came through and made those things happen. And for that, we will be forever grateful. Sources for this episode, Hometown Appetites, the story of Clementine Paddleford, the forgotten food writer who chronicled how America ate by Kelly Alexander and Cynthia Harris. How to Cook for a Whole Crew by Clementine Paddleford from the New York Herald Tribune, July 1960. Vast Drive and Courage, Spark Career of Famed Food Editor by Susan Delight for the San Diego Union, February 1959. A Life in the Culinary Front Lines by R.W. Apple for the New York Times, November 2005. The Great American Cookbook, 500 Time-Tested Recipes, Favorite Food from Every State by Clementine Paddleford, a reprint of the original How America Eats, edited by Kelly Alexander. A panel sponsored by the Food Studies Program at the New School in New York City titled Clementine Paddleford, America's First Food Journalist, which took place in June of 2010. Clementine Paddleford's obituary in the New York Times from November of 1967 titled Clementine Paddleford is Dead, Food Editor of Herald Tribune. Thank you for listening. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch, so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. 
I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday.